Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Sherry Klein, who is an Emmy-nominated re-recording mixer, and she's also a bit of a pioneer of women in audio in both music and in television, and she has worked on a lot of great TV shows, mixing for shows like Queen of the South, Sons of Anarchy, The Shield, Arrested Development, and a whole bunch more. And in this conversation, we get into a really great chat about working in audio post-production and what goes on in order to make the audio in the movies and TV shows that you watch, how to make that sound really good, really clear, and believable. Because as you'll hear in this interview, the world of audio post-production is very different than music. You're not always trying to get very clear audio. Believe it or not, sometimes you have to make things sound like they're a little bit more lo-fi or distorted or sound like something's far away or whatever. There's a lot of different factors that go into making audio believable for this kind of stuff. So inside of this episode, we talk about how Sherry goes about doing that and some of her processes for things like cleaning up poorly recorded audio or simulating spaces and how she goes about manipulating sounds with reverbs and other processing to make them sound believable. We also get into her process as a whole, which in the world of post-production audio is very, very important. If you're working on shows that are an hour long or movies that are a couple hours long and you've got literally hundreds of tracks, you can't waste your time. You have to have a very clear-cut process to get through the project, make it sound good, and get it to the quality that it needs to be. So in this episode, Sherry shares all of her process behind that and if you're someone who is not interested in post-production audio, there's still a lot to learn from this because when it comes to things like the processes and when it comes to things like creating space and atmosphere with your tracks, a lot of this absolutely applies to working on music as well. So there's definitely a lot of great stuff to take from this. And Sherry has a lot of great lessons, even in just her upbringing and how she worked her way throughout this industry. So I think you're going to get a lot of great stuff from this. So without further ado, let's just jump right into the episode. Sherry Klein, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you. Awesome. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. For people who might not be familiar with you and what you do and how you got into this industry and all the cool stuff you're up to these days, can you give us that background story? Sure. Um, I, you know, I started out as a musician, Okay. As a kid, I took my music lessons in New York. Um, I was definitely, the dream was to become a composer, to, be, to go study music in college. And that was, that was the dream. That was where I started. Um, my background is tremendously in, in music. Um, I went to college, after, after I graduated high school, I went to college. I studied at Webster College in St. Louis, Missouri, which was which now is actually uh, Webster University, but that was classical composition and counterpoint. And after six months of Gregorian chant at 9 a.m., I went, no, this isn't for me. <laughs> and so a friend of mine there who was also in music classes with me said, I'm going to this great place in Boston called Berkeley College of Music. At the time, it was Berkeley College, now Boston Uni uh, Berkeley University. So uh, I applied and I got in and I started the next semester uh, as an arranging and composition major over there. And I was in Berkeley for about three years, living the dream, loving it, composing, 
playing. My major was guitar. There was piano there. It had been guitar at the other place. Um, when I was a kid, I studied blues finger picking style guitar in Manhattan. And so I decided to study, you know, guitar, but then I decided as an arranging composition major, it would be better for me to study piano. So I switched over to piano. Um, cut to about three years into it. I had to do a project down in the Berkeley two-track studio. Now, this was a two-track studio in the basement of the school. I had no idea it even existed. I had to try to find it when they told me to, you know, record a chart down there. Now, I had been on what I call the other side of the glass as a musician many times in my teenage years, but I never even, uh, you know, walking into the control room was just listening to playback and it was other people's music. It sort of didn't do anything for me. This was the first time something of mine was being recorded. And even in the two-track studio with just a lot of dials, not even faders, I was watching the guy Joe Hostetter do it and it was exciting. I mean, hearing my stuff being manipulated, just the chart that I was doing, I, simple like six pieces, kind of like piqued an interest in me. I didn't know how much of an interest until later. But at the same time, I was reaching, I guess you could call it a writer's block. It was almost as if I was better off not knowing the theory that I learned. It seemed to me that I couldn't compose anything anymore. I knew all, I could sit in the subway and analyze a Charlie Parker solo, but I couldn't compose anything authentic and original because everything had been done before because all the same notes and all the same chords and all the theory that I knew was floating through my head and it was interfering with my compositional skills. And it kind of freaked me out because this was the dream. This was everything I wanted to do. And all of a sudden I started going down to that two track studio a little bit more and Finally, one day I handed in a harmony, a harmony composition, and I turned to the person next to me and I said, if I get an A on this, I'm quitting. And he said, why? And I said, because I'm not composing anything. This is a piece of crap. This is not what I'd call a composition. I said, I'm just too full of theory. I got to get out of this for a while. I need to take a break. And I got an A minus and I quit the next day. And <laughs> one of the cool things was I had been hanging out a little bit down in the two-track studio. Joe let me come around on my free time. And I was watching him and I thought it was really cool what was happening. And so I decided I wanted to learn more about audio. And um, one of my professors who really, I, I got along with very well, he pulled me aside and he said, I hear you're quitting. And I said, well, I need some time off. I can't, I just don't like what I'm doing right now. And he said, do you know how to type? And I said, no, I don't. I was going to take that next semester. He said, Sherry, don't ever learn to type. He said, if you want to get into the audio industry, mind you, this was a long time ago. Uh, if you want to get into the audio industry, you've got too much talent to sit in the front office of some recording studio or record company answering the phones. And that's what they're going to try to do to you. So I went, hmm, interesting. You know, it was like one of the best pieces of advice that I had ever been given at the moment. So I left Berkeley. I started doing live sound at Jazz Workshop Paul's Mall, which was a really big venue down there. And then also at a place called The Garage, which was more rock music. So I started doing that at night. It was a place called Orson Welles Film School. And two guys, Wayne Wadhams and, and Bill Gitt, were running it. And it was a small A-track studio at the bottom of Orson Welles Restaurant in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And they had a class. 
And so I decided to take the course. And luckily, most of the people that were in the course just wanted their demos recorded. So I just recorded everybody because I was the only one that really wanted to learn audio. At the same time, I did a very crazy thing and, and got a job at a recording studio. I told the guy I couldn't type. He said, that's okay. I don't need you to type. I just need a right hand person you know, to do things. We'll teach you how to edit children's albums and cut tape and do all that stuff. And I said, okay, cool. I said, eventually, I'd like to be an assistant engineer and be up in the control room. He said, no, that's out of the question. Women don't belong there. And I went, hmm, okay, fine. So I was his right-hand person for a television show that he was starting to produce. But the engineer in the control room was a great guy who knew what my aspirations were and knew I was taking the class at the Orson Welles Film School. And he taught me at night. And he helped me. Between the classes that I was taking with the A-Track studio, between Wayne and Bill, both knowing that I really wanted to learn how to do this. So they kind of mentored me. And between the studio time that I was getting with this person, I was learning a tremendous amount. I was a sponge at that point. Plus, I was doing live sound. That's when I also realized that live sound wasn't for me because if you wanted to in the studio, you can turn down the fader to shut something up. And in live sound, <laughs> it's just there. You can't. Yeah, no I, I think I like the studio better. <laughs> That's when I made that choice. About a year into it, the assistant engineer's job was coming up. And I wanted it. And so did Bobby. This person wanted me to do it. And he had once told me, you know, one day, surprise, surprise, you're going to end up having to do a session because something's going to come down and I won't be able to be here. And I went. Well, it just so happened it was a big snowstorm. He was snowed in, couldn't get in via subway, via train, by anything. The car was totally snowed in. We had a room full of musicians, and somebody had to start the session, or else they'd have to be paid and go home. Mm-hmm. So Bobby called and told Joe, let Sherry do it. And he said, no. <laughs> he said, what are you going to do, send the musicians home? She knows how to do it. She can start the session. Everything's in place. We set it up last night. It's all set to go. She knows what to do. So I had to start the session. And it was sort of being thrown right into the fire. And it was just recording what was there. But I was familiar with how the setup was. I knew the musicians. They knew me. Uh, The assistant engineer really didn't care less because he was leaving and he didn't really even want to be in the business. Um, So I did it. And midway into the second song, the engineer walks in and I get up to give him his chair and he said, no, finish it off. I'll check it out afterwards. But he saw what I was doing and everything was fine. So at that point, after the session, we went down to the owner and said, come on, just give her the assistance job. And he goes, okay, okay, you can do it. It's a reduction in pay. And if you screw up once, you're out. And I went, okay, deal. So I started being the assistant. I mean, it was kind of, it was funny because the owner liked me and he knew I, that I was smart and he knew that what, my, what I wanted to do, but he was just a, you know, diehard, no kind of person. Um, and there were no women, in, there really were no women in the, in the audio industry. And I've got a hard head so I can take a lot. So I just, I did it and started doing setups and he would teach me some more and I was still taking my some more classes. And then one night some guys came in to do some wiring and I stayed late to help them. And they said, Hey, we're building a recording studio. You want to join us? And I went, sure. 
<laughs> and I helped build a record, a 16 track recording studio from the ground up. I mean, we, we built, we built a studio that a shell within a shell that sank in the first six months. And then we had to figure out how to isolate it <laughs> a little bit more. We, we had an amazing time. I learned so much. I would be up in the conduits between the ceiling and the top of the shell because I was the smallest one that could get in there in like 95 degree Boston weather. It was insane, but I learned a tremendous amount. And they mentored me into being an engineer. And I became an engineer at that studio. I knew most of the musicians in town from Berkeley and from doing live bands and a lot of sound work there. And so I stayed with them for a bunch of years. I mean, we had, we had a console that looked like something from outer space. It was like 16 rotary pan pots. We had one fader in the house, which was just the overall monitor level. Um, we used uh, fiberglass insulation on some Hammond springs that were right underneath the console. So if we wanted to cut delay time, decay times, we would use, lift up the fiberglass. It taught me how to think outside the box. We used a, a Neumann bi-directional mic downstairs in the basement, bouncing off, depending on what wall we put it to, you know, to bounce it off and feed it back upstairs for a, a delay. Hmm. That's when I really learned how to think outside of the box. We didn't have money. We didn't have the money to do anything, but we made it work. And it was clean. Our engineer built this stuff and it was really clean. Our EQs, I had no idea what frequencies I was EQing. I just knew it was high end and low end. We called them peaker dippers and bottom toppers, depending on whether it was the <laughs> high end or the low end. Um, we had a couple of DBX noise reduction uni units that we would only use on various things that were a little noisier than other things. We had to pick and choose what we were using. Um, it, was, it was a phenomenal experience to learn that way. That's you had to put everything together from the ground up. And, and when you were doing all that experimenting, was that... Like, were you all together experimenting for the first time doing these kind of things? Or like, did somebody at the studio be like, oh, I've already done this before. And I think this works. Oh, no. This. The yeah. two guys, Don and John, who I consider my ultimate mentors, were, they already had a place. You know, they had studios. They had, they had, they'd been doing it for years. They were very experienced. They took me on yeah. and they educated me. So I was the one. But, but in terms of doing all the things that I said with the Hammond Springs and with the wiring, with everything... We were all just whatever we could do to create effects. I love that. You know, without having the money to buy the devices. I mean, John even built the most hilarious thing. John built a counter on the multi-track machine using a bicycle chain so that we could find things. He built it into a 3M 16-track machine. Um, it was crazy. You know, the things that we did to get where we needed to go. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's like one of those things where now people would be like, like they just, they would just give up, you know, it's like they're paralyzed if they don't have the tools that they need, but no, it's like, you know, people like you are like finding these unique ways to make it happen and, and getting the results. So, you know, there's always a way to do it. It's just a matter of like how outside of the box do you want to go with this? And it also taught me. Well, I can get into that later, but it also taught me it's not the gear, it's the person behind the console mm. and the ears of the person behind the console. You can have the best equipment in the world, but if, you're, if you've got no ears, it's not going to make you a good mixer. And it, you know, thinking outside of the box is a great lesson to learn early on because mm -hmm. in so many areas that I moved into, I had to learn to think outside of the box. 
So at a certain point, I decided to move to Los Angeles because that's where it was happening. And actually, when we started the studio, Don, John, and myself took a trip out to the West Coast. And when we thought we had all these backers and all this money, we went to look at some of the studios, you know, like Wally Hyders in San Francisco and Record Plant and, you know, all these places. And we uh, checked it all out, knew what we were going to do and found out that we only had one backer. And that's why we had no money when we got back. But we were able to build something to make it work. Um, We were bound and determined. No question about it. So at a certain point, I decided to move to LA. I didn't really know anybody, but I knew that that's where it was happening. The San Francisco scene was kind of going down at that point. I grew up in the New York area and decided, nah, I've had enough of New York for now. I want to move to the West Coast. So I came out to LA and I knew I had to get an assistant engineer's job. I would not be able to be just walk in and be an engineer. So I started circulating. And I went to a number of the big studios. I mean, Record Plant, Cherokee, um, I think United Western and Larrabee Studios. And strangely enough, I hit it off with the owner at Larrabee. And he called me back and he said, come in for another interview. And they sent me upstairs to Bob Stone, who was the head of maintenance at the time. But he also was a very big disco mixer at a certain Mm -hmm. point, a little few years later. And he put me through the paces. He put me through the paces. And when I came downstairs, I was smiling. And Jackie said, nobody comes downstairs from that guy smiling. (laughs) And I said, no, I thought he was kind of cool. I said, he asked a lot of good questions. And he came downstairs and told Jackie, yeah, she's she's on the ball. Let's let's think about this. Two days later, a client of mine from Boston calls me and says, hey, we just got a deal with Capital. We have to do a three demo thing. Uh, three song demo, any chance you have a place that you can do it at. So I called up Larrabee and I said, I have a client in Boston. They only have $3,000, but they have a deal with Capitol Records and they need a demo. Any chance I could do it in one of your studios? Now, Larrabee at the time was very big. I mean, they're doing Hall and Oates. They were doing Fleetwood Mac. They had so many people going through there. And he said, sure. Hmm. So one of the engineers, Tavi Mote, who has since passed, um, was my assistant. He helped me set up the room. The console, I believe, was an old Spectrasonics at that time. And in the other room, they had an API. And he, you know, kind of helped me get around, you know, everything and figure it all out. And I did the session and it came out great. And he went back to the boss and he said, she's more than ready. She could take my place if I couldn't do it. So the next day, Jackie called me outside and he said, okay, if a chick's going to make it in this business, they got to have balls. They got to be from New York and you got all that. So you're hired. Here's your keys, your hat and your T-shirt. <laughs> and that's how I got hired at Larrabee. Amazing. And I was there as, you know, as an assistant engineer and transitioned into an engineer over the years. I mean, for the most part, if you're trying to move up, somebody has to either get hit by a car and die before you can get a chair. But they moved me up. And they allowed me to do a lot more in sessions for a couple of reasons. It was the height of the disco era. We had a lot of composers that, you know, you're punching in and out of these big button studer machines. And I could read a score. So during the orchestral sessions, they were getting frustrated because people were missing punches. And somebody said, well, Sherry can read a score. And they called me in and I said, yeah, just bracket what you want in and out on what tracks, you know, what, what instruments. And so that's what kind of elevated me. 
I was reading the scores and I was punching in and out exactly where they wanted it. And so it brought me into a different realm. And I started working with some of the better producers and engineers. I mean, I, I got lucky back when Bruce Botnick was engineering. I worked with him on a bunch of stuff um, at the time. You know, I'd worked with Andy Johns when he came in to do the Cal Jam tapes. We Bruce locked us in a studio for like a week wow. and <laughs> did some, you know, we went back and forth. Um, Jack Nietzsche, I did Michelle Phillips. And then I worked on the Runaways album as an assistant, did some overdubs. And then Kim Fowley basically plunked me out and said, are you ready? I have an album deal for a girl group on MCA. And I went, yep. So that's when I started moving up into the engineering realm and started doing some jazz albums and a few reggae albums. And, and it was great. I mean, I had a couple of years of really great engineering. And there were only a couple of us in town. I think there were like four or five of us in different studios. So there were a lot of articles and things like that. It was kind of a fun time. And then the bottom dropped out of the industry right around the time that Napster came about. And we all knew things were going to change. Work started drying up. Record companies started going out, going under. I mean, Arc Records closed, Islands Rec Island Records closed. They all owed me money, you know, and, and I was kind of sitting there going, what am I going to do? And then by a fluke, a phone call came from an engineer I had worked with on a number of albums. And he said, I'm working at this local TV station in town, KTTV. And I'm taking a summer vacation. I need somebody to take my chair. And I said, well, what do I need to do? And he goes, well, you've got the ears and you know the gear. I just have to teach you about time code. And I said, ah, oh, that awful thing that when you lift up channel 24 by mistake, because that's, you know, that's, yeah. it synchronizes tape machines. And he said, well, a little bit more than that. So come on over. So I spent a day with him. He explained synchronization, video, picture, and I took over his chair. And I did that all summer. And the way I looked at it was if I got an album deal, Screw the post because it was boring. It was mono. It was just mm -hmm. breaking into stereo. So I was like, no, I, I want to be doing records. Yeah. So I went back and forth for a number of years until after KTTV, I got another job at a magazine format, but eventually that kind of a show, reality more or less. And once you've done one of that, you can almost do anything because it's so taxing in so many areas and you're doing so many <laughs> different things. But after that, I got a job at a studio that was transitioning from records to post-production. And that's where my post-production life really began. That was called EFX Systems in Boston, in uh, Burbank. We were the first place in town to have all this, all uh, DigiDesign at the time, DigiDesign, Synclaviers, PostPros. I edited a film on a PostPro, which was the first one. And with one of their people who sat with me for a week, and walked out with a book for what needed to happen in order to make it viable for dialogue editing. Um, I did everything there. We put together a room. Um, if we walked into a room, we brought in the synchronizer. We wheeled in the multi-track machine, 24-track machines. Um, we did everything. Uh, we had emulators. We had ARPs. We, had, we were making our own digital sounds. I think we were the first place to actually... I was doing a lot of animation and I think we were the first place in town to do Foley on anim animation. Cool. 
Um, he also brought in, I don't know how he managed this one, but he brought in every major brand's digital 24 track recorder. And we A-B'd them. There were like six of them. Oh, wow. you know, it was like Studer, it was Ampex, it was MC, MCI, it was TAC or Tascam. I mean, he brought in, we had a whole array of them. And we played, had somebody play bass through it. We did sound effects through it. And we A-B'd them to listen to the difference. I mean, you'd think they'd all be the same. They're digital. But they were different. Just like in analog, you know, you listen to an MCI machine, you listen to an Ampex machine, you listen to a Studer, you know, they're different sounding. You learn that you want to record on a, on a Studer and play back on an Ampex mm -hmm. or an MCA, uh, MCI for punch, you know, that kind of thing. It was absolutely incredible having that experience to be able to listen that way. So cool. I stayed there for quite some time, for about nine years. It was, a, it was a great education. And that's also where I started the area of special, specialization eventually, because I started out mixing everything, dialogue, music, and effects. Uh, there was a show called Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy's Nightmares, Freddy Krueger. And I did that, and I would mix everything on something like that. And, and when we were editing dialogue, okay, the tracks would come in on a four-track. Everything was transferred to a four-track machine. We, we would transfer by phasing to the guide track each region and putting it on the multi-track machine. So in essence, I was pre-dubbing as I was going along, but I was editing by building, by phasing every region. Wow. You know, until edit decision lists came along and BTX soft touch and QLocks came along and then you had you know, you, you really had the capacity to use edit decision lists, but you had to dial everything in. You couldn't just feed it in like you can today with digital, you know, with workstations. So it was a very cumbersome product, project, you know, to, to get into editing a film or a TV show. And I was doing that as well as mixing. So when areas of specialization came along and we had three-person crews, I became the dialogue mixer. They just kind of said, yeah, you, you do dialogue because that's what you do. And I said, okay, you know, whatever. And so I had somebody mixing sound effects and I had somebody mixing music and Foley, the three-person crew. And one of the big shows that sort of put me out there and elevated me in that area was 30-something. Uh, which was a very big ensemble show at the time. I think one of the first ensemble shows on TV. So I did that one and I did a number of other shows and stayed with that for quite a long time. It was analog. I had my black boxes, patch cords, you know, it was everything that was familiar to me. It all made sense. Mm -hmm. And I was away in Greece. I used to take my summers off and because there was nothing happening in the summers, we didn't have streaming or, you know, Table or anything. And so I would go travel the world. So I was in Greece when I got an, uh, a letter or something. I, I must have been e an email of sorts that I got from somebody saying, Hey, this studio is going chapter 11. We're all, we're all leaving and looking for jobs. And I'm like, Oh, not good. I'm here. That's happening there. <laughs> <laughs> studio isn't going to be there when I get back. Um, so when I got back, I started hustling to try to find a job. I didn't know anybody in town. I had stayed very close to the to myself, you know, in the yeah. studio. I didn't really venture out to the lots. I didn't know people on the lots. But luckily, because of a lot of the work that I had done, they knew me. 
Mm. And I realized, you know, everybody was telling me how difficult it was reaching these studio managers, these people who are doing the hiring. And so um, I sat down one day and I thought about it and I went, okay, if I was working in the studio as a studio manager and the front desk person who answers the phone, she usually leaves at five o'clock. Anybody with their worth their weight is probably there at 5.30 or 6 or 7. So I started calling. I love that. <laughs> after they left. And I got hold of everybody that I wanted to reach. They would pick up the phone. And I would basically go into a spiel, you know, saying, hi, I'm Kelly Klein. You know, I, I work at EFX Systems and I, you know, I'm looking to get into a three person, you know, into a, a mixing situation. And um, anyway, it just so happened there were a couple of openings. And I ended up taking the one at Sony that came through. That was one of the first ones. Um, and I was still working. I still had some shows at the other facility. So I made a deal with them. They, I would take over. There was a, mi a mixer who was retiring. And I would take his chair and do, I think it was one or two shows there. And I had two shows at the other place that I wanted to finish up. I said I didn't want to leave in the middle of the season. I didn't want to steal anything. That was always the way that I worked. I wanted to finish it through. So I did two days here and, you know, three days here. And I said, for the first six months, let's do that. And then we'll reassess and you can decide if you want me. When I got to also at Sony, when I had the meeting, I turned to um, the person who was running the department and I said, well, what if these guys as the lead mixer, dialogue mixer, what if these guys don't like taking orders from a, a girl? And he said, I'll fire their asses. You've got the qualifications. Nobody else did. I said, okay. Went in and worked. He did fire one guy, not even at my request, not even at, at my request, not even because I wanted it, because the clients went to him and said, he's being a dick to her. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, when, when the manager said to me, he goes, why didn't you tell me? I said, I've got a hard head. I said, this is my first year here. I don't want to make waves. I said, I can deal with it. I don't care what he says. I just do what needs to be done. And I tell him what needs to be done. I said, everybody else is fine. And he said, well, I don't like it. The clients don't like it. He's gone. It was a week before Christmas yet. Wow. But he fired him. That's great. Though. So they had, they really had my back and I, and I kept going with it. I was there. I was at Sony. I had a dubbing stage there for 10 years, nine years, nine or 10 years. And it was a lot. And it was great. You know, I had my own dubbing stage. I worked on tons of projects. After about nine years, I started hearing rumblings about this Pro Tools thing. And I started looking into it and decided I wanted to learn about it. I was also kind of bored, honestly. You know, it's like, you know, when you're working analog with somebody, you know, you get a chasing. I read more books while I was mixing. I can't even tell you. We had Game Boys. They were, they were actually wired Game Boys back then. We had wired Game Boys between two mixers while one mixer was working on a chasing. The effects mixer was working <laughs> on a chasing. We would play Game Boys or we'd play pool or we'd be reading a book. Okay. And if I was working on a really difficult dialogue passage, okay, they would be playing with the Game Boys or pool or something. Love it. Because you really, <laughs> or I'd be outside smoking a cigarette. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't focus in 
uh, when you're working and you're all working piece by piece. Also, when I started at Sony, now at EFX, we had had um, the Harrison Series 10, one of the first ones. So I understood how to run a digital console or a console that was analog digital. Um, when I went to Sony, they first had just a regular old analog console. That might have a quad eight maybe, but nothing was automated for the first two years. They told me they were getting new consoles. Eventually, they got the Harrison Series 10. That was it. And so because I knew the Series 9, I had taught, I was teaching everybody how to work the console. So they kind of looked at me as like the local geek. And so when we had certain things to beta test that were proprietary to Sony, they, they threw them in my room. So we would have, I mean, we ended up with so much downtime. I mean, we slept there at night sometimes to make deadlines. I mean, there were six of us just sleeping on the floor and, <laughs> you know, waking up in the morning and going, I mean, there was more overtime than I can tell you and more time and a half and double time and forced calls than I could even tell you. But we would, we did it, you know, we were working through it all. I always yeah. said they, they gave it to me because I was the smallest one and couldn't pick the stuff up and throw it off the catwalk. But it's interesting hearing your story, though, because it's like, as as you're going through this, I'm starting to like really see the connection between how one thing led to the next, which led to the next. And and like, it, it really, it all had to come together to get you to where you are now. And, you know, you, you just constantly kept proving yourself and, and showing what you were capable of and showing that you you were willing to learn and take on things that other people might not have been willing to, to do. And all. so it, it makes sense that you got to where you're at right now, because, yeah, like, if you don't have that attitude, you're going to, you're going to sink, you're, you know, you're, there's no way you're going to keep moving on in the industry. So it makes a lot of sense that you got to where you are. And, well, I always uh, say that I have the, have the attention span of a 12 year old. I always want to know something new. I've always wanted to. And the Pro Tools thing came along and, and everybody said, no, by the time that takes over, we'll be retired. And I went, oh no, you're wrong guys. Trust me, you're wrong. <laughs> and the union was offering a Friday night a Sunday course in Pro Tools 101. Like you went in Friday night, you came out Sunday and you knew what Pro Tools was about. Wrong. You know, I just said, that's like, that's not for me. So I sought out this guy, Chilitos Valenzuela, who had a place in Santa Monica and was giving Pro Tools classes. And it, I had to plunk down a lot of money of my own personal money to do it. But it was three hours a night, a couple of nights a week and for three weeks. And he promised I would really understand it by the end of it. Well, we were more kind of contemporaries age-wise, and he knew that I was already a working professional mixer and I had a stage at Sony. So he said, look, anytime you want to use the facility and you're not working, just come in here. And it just so happened that I was working on three shows. Two shows got canceled within the same week and I had lots of time available. So I went there and I learned it. Learning it is different than knowing it. Absolutely. And I eventually left Sony and went to a small independent facility. It was called Larson Studios, who recently closed, but Larson Studios. They were the first place, one of the first places in town that was all Pro Tools. They had Control 24s. And I called them up blindly and I said, I don't know if you remember me. I think I stole a show from you years ago, but don't hold that against <laughs> me. I want to mix on Pro Tools. And he said, you people don't leave when you're on the lot. And I said, well, this person wants to leave because I knew it was going to be a couple of years before Sony elevated into that. And so I left Sony and I went there. 
and I started working in Pro Tools exclusively. And I always say to people when they say, what was it like in your first session? And I said, it was like somebody put me in a spaceship and they pointed to the moon and they said, you know how to get there, get there. But now turn around and face the back. All your tools are on the ceiling, but you know how to get to the moon. I sat there like, okay, no black box is handy. You know, I didn't have to patch anything that I wanted. I knew how to mix a show, mix countless shows, but I had to trust this box to keep it all virtual. I had to somehow navigate the EQ on a screen or on the faders. And if you remember the control 24s, the EQ was not necessarily the easiest thing to operate. You sort of (laughs) had to punch up buttons to get to different. It was kind of a, yeah. Yeah, sometimes there's like a, a comfort in just like sticking with the gear that you know best. But yeah. when you, but when you have no other choice but to move on with the tech to do it, then, yeah, yeah. You, you have to go all in, right? Yeah. And I was very lucky because my supervisor on the show that they put us on was an old Pro Tools guy. You know, he'd been editing and new Pro Tools. So every time I went to do something, he'd watch me to go. Oh, well, there's a faster. Why don't you try it this way? And I'd go. Oh, I know how to do that. Now's a good time to use it. Okay. And I'd start finding out ways to do things by other people telling me and then by experimenting and taking everything that I knew and finally getting to use it. Yeah. And that's how I grew in, in that. So, it, you know, I tell people I had like three or four different careers. I started out as a musician. I went to, <laughs> I was a recording engineer. Then I went into analog post-production and then I went into, you know, digital workstation uh, engine, you know, mixing. Sure. I said, that's like completely different careers. And each one was like, oh my God, am I really doing this? How is this? And each one was a fluke. But but they all connected at some point. So yeah. They all connected. Yeah. But that's pretty much, you know, what got me to exactly where I am now. I love it. Yeah, it's funny because like when we when we first started, you were saying like, oh, my background story is probably going to answer your like first 10 questions. And it absolutely did. So <laughs> but I'd love, I'd love to talk a little bit more about like kind of your role these days. And um, in particular, like, I mean, I, I had mentioned to you before we started, too, that I have a little bit of background in post as well. And, you know, I, I did some ADR and sound effects and did some mixing as well. But I remember the very first time that I got to open up a mix session for uh, a TV show or it was a film that we were working on. And I remember just like almost being like floored by the number of tracks that, w- that were in there. And, you know, I come from a music background. So to me, it was like I was used to seeing maybe like 30 tracks and like a three minute song. And then, you know, to see like an hour long film with like hundreds of tracks, you know, I was like, I couldn't couldn't wrap my head around like how do people mix this stuff in such a short amount of time and to such a high quality as well. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your process when you're when you're taking on these sessions like to give our to give our audience some perspective first off like how many tracks would you typically find yourself working on in in a normal session i know obviously there it's going to vary quite a bit i'm sure um for me because i stay in touch with my editors and i try to get the i'd rather have concise and more on the top level than not and I work with, I work with, first, let me say that I work with only Avid um, Pro Tools consoles, either Icons 
big icons, small icons, and S6s. So, you know, you're going multi-level. So you have to work with, I work with custom faders. I work with, you know, I, I have my template in my head and I try to get things laid out before it even gets to me in a manner where my muscle memory is all there already because muscle memory sense. is half of it. Okay. So I try to consolidate my tracks. They, they may send me, you know, 20 ADR tracks and there are eight tracks by the time I'm done with it because at the beginning of session, I consolidate. I do a lot of consolidating. So I may be working with um, maybe a hundred tracks or something like that, or maybe, yeah, maybe just, you know, just for an average TV show. And that's, that and that's just like dialogue. That's stuff. just dialogue and music. Okay. My effects mixer has, you know, a gazillion tracks. I don't know how many tracks. He's got <laughs> tons and tons of tracks. Every time I have to go over to his side, if, if, I'm doing fixes and he's not there that day. And it's like, I'm like, guys, just give me a minute to find everything. (laughs) Yeah. That was my experience with it too. Is that like, yeah, you have all of these like little clips of audio and like a hundred tracks and you're like, how do you, how do I find this? Like, it's so hard to navigate and also like hard to sometimes have the, the time to focus on what you're working on. Cause these clips are sometimes so short and, and it's, it's, there's so much to navigate around. So as far as like your systems to help you work faster, like, do you have, you, you mentioned having a template. I'm sure that's a big part of yes. your process, right? Um, what other, are there any other steps that you take to help you just kind of keep that focus and work fast? Well, we ask, we always ask for the rough cut before we go in. So we, we get to download that at home. I watch it and I make markers on scene cuts. I make notes on music because I'm listening to their temp mix. The temp mix that they're sending in their rough cut or even their final cut is an idea of what they want to hear. Sometimes they're so locked into their temp cut and bad sounding effects that it's frustrating. But for the most part, you're getting an idea of how they want sound to be manipulated, how they want things to be in the final mix. So both my partner and I will watch the show before take our mental notes, take our marker notes, write some things down. And then I just send them to my recordist who sets up for me and he imports my markers in the morning. So that's, that's a time saver for me because when I get to the studio, I do my consolidating. I put things in places. I may have 40 tracks below anything that's active, totally deactivated, filled with ADR, just random ADR that they did that I may want to mine through to find consonants or pitches or something to make the ADR work better than the selected takes. They give me their selected takes, but I don't always agree. Sometimes, you know, in grafting production with ADR, I need to morph things a little bit more to make it work. And so I'll go down into those tracks. I call them my raw tracks. And that may be 40 ADR takes of one line that I can find the proper things that will get me going to be able to make a creation of mm-hmm. the ADR line to work. And, and just for clarification, for people who might not understand what ADR is, ADR is when people are coming back to the studio after the fact and re-recording It's automatic dialogue replacement, Yeah. basically. So, so if they were recording on scene and there was a lot of wind in their mics or something like that, they'd come in after the fact and re-record their parts and, and get you cleaner audio. Yeah. Or ad lines that are written after the fact to clarify network notes. Sometimes the networks come back and say, 
We need to know more about that, please. You know, so you see a lot of over the shoulder lines happening. Uh, you can a always tell. Those are ad lines. <laughs> those are lines that we're not. You don't, you don't see the jaw shots. moving, but you hear the voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we try to get that as as well synced as possible. Yeah. But I have, you know, my method is, and back in the days when I mixed dialogue, music, and effects, I did it the same way as I do do now. I mean, I would go through and do my dialogue and have the music riding with me and go, then I sort of work. If a scene is like a two minute scene, I will go to the end. I'll play through it, have the music riding with me and I'll play through that scene. And I create markers a lot of times for things that I want to address. And by the time I get to the end of the scene, I know what I want to use in terms of devices on it, be it a cedar, a deesser, equalization, whatever I need. I know, even if I have to go in and do some cleanup with um, isotope. So I have that all in my head by the time I get to the end of that first pass. So rather than going back to the beginning, I tend to go in sections backwards and play to the end, backwards and play to the end, and then back another minute you know, or 30 seconds and play to the end and there. And then I'll go through it and I'll do the stop starts with all my markers and address the ADR, address the bad lines, address whatever. Then I get to the end and I go back and I lay in the music because by that time I've learned the music. And if the composer is watching the same film as me, it lays in beautifully. So then I'll move into the next scene. I may not be completely happy with the scene I just finished, but I know I'm going to have a lot, a lot more time to work on it, a lot, a lot more cracks at it. But I have to get to the end of the 43, 45, 50, whatever minute show it is. And the thing that I love about Pro Tools working and mixing is you get to do your own pre-dub. You get to do a pre-dub on every show. And my partners and I have always worked independently. I used to have a partner who was, we'd have to tell the clients, okay, I may be in the bathroom scene or the bedroom scene. And you'll hear carbides going by really loud and screeches. Look at his screen. He's outside starting the chase scene. So we would work different and you just tunnel vision. You know, all I heard mm -hmm. was my stuff. And he was great because every time he heard me going in for a notch, I didn't even have to say, hang on, I'm notching. He'd hear me do a sweep and he'd just stop. And then I'd go, okay, got it. And then he would start up again. And people are always amazed when two mixes are in two different locations and working, but all you're focusing on is what you're doing. Now, my partner now has his own studio at home. He has like a 7-2 studio at home or 7-1 studio at home. So he will do day one at his house. I go into the studio and do day one at my at, in the studio. I do dialogue top to bottom, you know, and music top to bottom. And I can really make that dialogue string live. I'm not waiting for him to fill any holes. My dialogue is consistent top to bottom with fills, with everything. Okay. And my music track. Then at the end of the day, I print my stems. And that's when I do a final listen. And anything that kind of hits me, I go back and adjust. And then I ship them off to him. Meanwhile, he's been working at home with a guide track of dialogue and music. And he works, you know, within those parameters. And then I ship him my stuff. And then he plays down and adjusts to that at night. 
Then he comes in in the morning and we do our first play down together. And we do that on the five ones, you know, on the big speakers. Mm -hmm. We hear everything and we adjust and we make it really nice and the way that, you know, we like it. And then we do another pass on the small speakers, on the near fields. And that will accomplish any music discrepancies, loss of low end, loss of high end, you know, whatever we need to do. I'll do it on the dialogue. He'll do it on the effects. Also making sure that we're staying within the spec of the delivery requirements, which is big, watching that LKFS. So we'll be moving along. When we get to the end of that pass, if it's a two-day mix, we take lunch and come back in and play it back for the executives and then do their fixes and go home. If it's a three-day mix, at that point, usually the co-producer comes in who has the, the executive producer's ears. And they will listen. Most of the people that work with us love the way that we work because we get through things so fast and it gives them a chance to have their say as well. And then we'll do that for the rest of day two. And then day three in the morning or after lunch, whenever, we'll play back for the executives. Now, on day two and day three, I'm also getting final ADR on a lot of stuff that I'm having to throw in. I'm also getting the stems for the music that hadn't been approved, which could be an entire show, <laughs> yeah, tossed at me sometimes an hour before playback. I mean, they give me a two track, you know, just to, or if a show, if a, uh, a foot song, you know, a source cue hasn't been cleared. I may have five alternates. That was one of the things that I always found really fascinating about the post industry is that like, it's not like music where you have all the tracks done and it's just like, okay, go mix. It's the post industry. It's like to the, to the last minute, things could be changing and you could be getting new music or they might shorten the scenes or whatever. And then now you're like working on a whole new form. Yeah. And so there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of things that are being added. So you you can't be the type of person that is like super married to what's happening. Like it, it, it's always adjusting. So I, I love that uh, that you brought that up because I think it's 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 another interesting aspect of the post industry for sure. Yeah, we yeah. definitely have to roll with things. Uh, things are thrown at us constantly. I mean, I if I walk into day one and I've got everything, I'm amazed. And even the you know the co-producers and my supervisors are amazed. We're all amazed, you know, because it's like, oh, well, we had three weeks off you know, a hiatus, maybe they got it together, but sometimes you'll have two weeks off hiatus and you still don't have the voiceover or you still don't <laughs> have the ADR lines because they couldn't get the actor because they were in Bratislava or something and they can't find a place to do it. You know, we had one time where it was a pivotal line that needed to be done and they couldn't get hold of the actress because she had been flying back from Europe. Finally, they get hold of her and she's in a taxi cab in Manhattan and we have to get this line. And I looked at them and I went, have her do it in the taxi cab. And they're like, what? I'm like, it's a futz line. It's a telephone line. Let them do it. Let her do it in the taxi. Trust me. It'll be fine. Noise and all. I'll clean yeah. it up. It'll be fine. So she did all her lines in the taxi cab on the way to her house. And we laid it in. Another time I was working on a show and it must have been about two o'clock in the morning. And we needed a, a voiceover for this show. And the actor was, well, I didn't know it at the time, but he was in, he was, sorry, he was traveling. And so the executive producer said, we, we have to get this line. So they contact the actor and the actor sends us the line. And I hear the line and I go, is he in a bathroom or something? <laughs> 
I said, the, the reverberation is, I said, we cannot use that as a voiceover line to match all the other voiceover lines. There's no, nothing that will get rid of that and make it palatable. So I said, tell him to go into his closet and do it. I don't know why actors always go into bathrooms. They think it's the the best place, but it's always the worst place. Like they have the most privacy there or something. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes into the closet and he sends it to us. And it's hollow. And rever- I said, doesn't he have any clothes in his closet? And he goes, oh, he's in a hotel room. <laughs> he's in Europe. I said, oh, my God. I said, okay, call him back. Ask him if there's rugs in his hotel room. He says, yes. I said, is there a bed skirt, the thing that hangs down from the bed? And he said, yes. I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Get down on the ground and put your iPhone right where the floor meets the bed skirt. And then stand back, oh, like, I, I, you know, I, I always go five fingers like this, you know, that kind of a thing. And I put up five fingers and I say, tell him to stand back that and half as much more and then give me the line. And that's what he did. And there was enough deadening to make it workable. <laughs> I love that. Well, that, that brings up another interesting topic that I, was, I wanted to chat with you about, which was that, yeah, in this industry, you're you're constantly getting recordings from multiple sources, different locations, and there's a lot of inconsistencies in the sounds that you get. and one of the things that you really have to become a master at is being able to clean up the audio to make it usable, but not only usable, but to also just make it sound uniform with everything else. And so I was curious to know, like, when it comes to cleaning up your dialogue tracks, what are some of your processes for doing that to to make everything sound clean and, and usable? Because, you know, and th- this even applies to people who are working on music as well. Like, if you have someone who records you know, vocals in a closet or, or, you know, in their bathroom or wherever, really like, you know, sometimes you have to clean up these, these tracks to make things usable. So, um, yeah, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your process there. Um, I like, I stay very simple. I like a very natural sound. Um, I use the cedar. I have a dialogue chain. I basically have all my dialogue in mono for most TV shows. And if I need to pan it, I have a series of pan tracks that would allow me to move things in different places. But so rarely is the dialogue moving around that it allows me to have tracks set up for panning. Um, so I have a mono dialogue stem and an ADR stem. And I don't, I tend to bring my ADR into my dialogue tracks. So they're all processed the same, even though I have the same gear on the ADR tracks. But sometimes I bring bad pieces of dialogue into the ADR tracks to process it differently. In other words, I might have one angle that is really noisy and needs a notch filter or one angle that, you know, has uh, too much noise in it. And the other one is perfectly good. So I'll move those tracks down into another processing venue, more or less. Um, But I stay with EQ and DSer on each channel. Um, I use a limiter on uh, or compressor on my, dialogue chain i use soothe in and out i i don't keep a lot of the stuff on my dialogue chain is in bypass and i use that when necessary like i have a um my notch filter on there and i use that sparingly because i most of the time when i have multiple noises and things i use isotope rx which has dozens of dozen modules 
of different things. And I live and die by isotope. I really do. I mean, there are many other devices out there now that also clean things. And Abstentia, that's another one. That's a fantastic device that I use for cleaning dialogue. Um, Abstentia and RX are my go-to items. Um, I use the McDSPSA2 for my DSing. Um, I have one that's set a certain way on the on my dialogue chain, and I have other frequencies selected for or areas selected on my individual channel channels. Um, I stay very basic because if I move around from to different stages, I want to know that everything that I'm using is going to be available because I only have certain plugin my plugins myself that I've bought. Um, I also tend to use speakerphone as a room ambience. Hmm. Um, back in my Sony days, I used the Ultra Harmonizer 3000 to create rooms because it sounded like crap, kind of. And you need to make, I mean, rooms don't sound beautiful. They have coloration. And sometimes you need coloration, which means not using the best gear. In other words, I might use a true verb, which is not my favorite reverb by any means, but to emulate a room sound because of the coloration inherent in the unit, I can create what I want. With speakerphone, I can use it for futzing, yes, but the rooms in it also it gives you, it's like having a, you know, an all-in-one device. Um, you've got mic degradation, which you sometimes need when matching ADR. You need a certain amount of distortion added into it. You've got reverb time. You've got room sounds, large or small or whatever. And, you know, you've got different microphones to throw them through. And that's where my record engineering background comes in. I know what these microphones sound like. If I want to thin out a voice and throw it through a like, you know, an old Sony mic or, you know, or if I want to fatten something up and use a U47, this will help aid me. It's got, you know, some speed stuff I can do. It's got, you know, aside from the normal flanging and, you know, effect stuff that you can do with, with speakerphone. And if you audio suite it, there it is. And you've got your original. If, it, if you've gone too far and you just save it as a preset and call it up, you know, behind the door. I have, I have, I must have 50 presets in there, but I know what <laughs> every one of them sounds like because I also know what show they came from. Yeah. And so if I need something to sound like it's coming from a tunnel in, you know, like an air conditioning shaft, I have that because I used it somewhere and I might have to alter it, but I start with the preset, you know, or a certain mic futz. For an arena, for a, a an airport, for a prison announce, um, I know how much distortion I used on different things. So I rely on my presets, and I rely on the things that I know. And I, you know, I I will vary things. I will change things. I mean, I just went to the um, Fab uh, Filter Pro Q3. You know, I just started playing with that, using that as an EQ, because I was just using the EQ3, the Avid EQ3, because it was always there. It was everywhere. Um, so I, I stay pretty consistent with the gear that I use, but the plugins that I use, I do rely on them. I love that. Yeah. It's interesting because 
Yeah, that was the other thing I, I remember from that industry very well, too, is that you're, you know, it isn't, it isn't like music where, like, you, you want that, like, close mic sound all the time, you know, or, right. or like, you, we, that thing is always in your face. Like, you, you are constantly trying to make things sound closer or further away, and you're also trying to make something feel like it's in a specific room or some, some sort of specific space. So there is, a, there's a, it's a lot of manipulation of the audio to get it to sound realistic and to match what you're seeing in the screen. Um, and so, yeah, certainly if you have like the reverb presets and that, that's great, obviously that's a good, that's going to be a good starting point for, for a lot of it, for sure. But you do have to create those spaces sometimes out of thin air. And, uh, to some degree, I think now that I'm thinking about this out loud, it really reminds me of when, when you were at that studio where you were like, just trying to find ways to make it happen. So it, it kind of makes sense that this is, it's, a, it's all coming full circle here, right? But what are some of your other techniques for when you don't have a, a reverb preset that simulates a specific space? Like, how do you go about creating those spaces or what, what's your thought process behind, you know, what, what steps you're going to take or what tools you're going to use? Uh, if I'm not starting with a preset, I start, you know, depending on what it is. Okay, a situation arose recently where some ADR lines came in. They were in a hallway of a, like an arena type type things backstage and the ADR came in and it was fairly reverberant, shall we say. Uh, it sounded like it was recorded in a hollow closet or a kitchen or something like that. And there was no way to get it done again. There was no way. And so I had to look at it and say, okay, there's only so much de-reverbing I can do without getting too much aliasing and, and you know, artifacts and stuff. But let me look at where we are. Let's see. We are in an arena backstage, high ceilings. And so I started looking at ways to minimize what I got in the ADR and simultaneously create a path to get into that from the production, which was lav mics. It wasn't even the boom mics. It was the lav mics. So slowly... And I was, I was watching the picture and seeing where I could start moving into more of an ambient sound as they were walking. And then they arrived at where they needed to be. And then coming out of that until we got to another part of the scene to make it work. So I had to fudge the bad ADR and I had to create a space for the production that was really clean to sound as bad as the ADR in order to get you in and out without the listener going, what, what happened? You know, I mean, many times you have to take the production and create a space for the ADR to fit into by altering the production as well. You know, sometimes you'll get, and this is something that I always tell my dialogue editors, if you've got a scene, say it's inside of a church or something, and some of the stuff that has been selected is lav mics and some of it is boom mics, don't put all the same, all the super ambient stuff on the tracks with the lav mics, separate them, like do two or three tracks or four tracks of the ambient stuff. And then the other stuff, you know, the, the cleaner stuff that allows me to first process the cleaner stuff and then put everything in the same room. Sometimes people make the mistake of just putting reverb on the clean stuff, you know, or, I mean, you can just put reverb on the clean stuff. If you're putting, if it, emulates what the rest of the production ambient mm -hmm. stuff sounds like but then you have to put it into us into a stereo space into a bigger room 
So you need to process the clean stuff to make it match the reverberant stuff and then put all that into a room together that is larger 5.1 space. It's true, so, yeah. you know, you're, you're constantly creating. I mean, you get somebody that's on a microphone doing announcing or doing, you know, uh, you know, in an event, you can, at some point you have to start from scratch creating that sound via delays, via delay times, um, limiting to give it a certain sound. There are certain, you know, you, you just, I just build it until I get what's in my mind's ear. And I use that phrase a lot because it's like painters paint what's in their mind's eye and they don't stop till they get it. Well, it's the same thing with mixers. I mean, I can spend, I can spend days on an ADR line if somebody doesn't stop me (laughs) because it can always be better. It can always be better for me, but for most people, it'll go right by. As long as it doesn't sound like a bad, you know, what's up, Tiger Lily, like a bad Woody Woody Allen thing where lines just pop out, you know, that's what takes you out of the scene. Your job is to make it cohesive so that the listener doesn't all of a sudden go, oh, what was that? Sounds like that was recorded in a different place. Absolutely. So you're constantly manifesting and creating as you're working any scene. If you, uh, another thing, you know, some people I've heard, they're on a New York City street and there's a lot of traffic. But the signal to noise is good. The dialogue is good within it. Why are they trying to get rid of all the noise? You can minimize it a little because we're only going to put it back in. Look at where you are. It's you true. know, if the scene dictates it, why take it out when we're going to put it back in if you have signal to noise? And that's what I tell even my production mixers. I mean, we're only as good as what they feed us. And then the dialogue editor also. And a lot of times they do processing. If you trust them, you let them do some processing, at least basic processing for you before it even comes to you. And that helps out a lot. But, you know, my my job is to tell the story and get that dialogue out. Yeah. So I'll use whatever I have to to get what I'm hearing or want to hear and doesn't take me out of the scene. Yeah, I love it. It's 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 such a creative field because yeah, you're you're manipulating audio in so many ways. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about being in that industry was that it's it's not the same thing every day. Every project is totally different and it really does force you to be super creative. Um but kind of going back to your process earlier, it you have a very defined process it sounds. And 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 I think that that's that's the one thing I definitely notice in the post industry is that everyone has this like very clear process of how they do things and the order they work in and how people work together as a team. And it has to be defined that way, because if it's not, then you're going to spend like an hour working on a single line and you're going to run out of time to finish the rest of the 50 minutes that, that you have in that show. So you definitely have to be very clear in your processes. You have to because um, that when you're clear in your processes and, and you've got your templates and everything it allows you to have the time to be creative and to make those decisions that you need to, to actually put it all together and make it sound the way it's supposed to. So, um, exactly. yeah, I, 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 I love learning about your process and, and, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's such a thing that like, I, I find it really important to have that process. And it's one of the things that I try to teach people all the time when it comes to even their music, because so many people, 
just really approach their projects from like a, a perspective of like trying to find problems and solving it that way and like not really having any sort of like system in place. So it, I think if you're just if you're looking for problems, you're just going to find problems and you're going to just constantly be in a circle and you're never going to finish anything. And it's going to cause a lot of guesswork and, and like second guessing and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, really having that defined process is really important. So, um, yeah, I love. Well, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, one thing that I'll say relating to music, when I first learned to mix music, I remember one engineer, I was watching him and he said, here's what I do. I start with the kick drum and then I put up the lead vocal. And then from there, I add the snare, and then I add a guitar or a piano. He said, the thing that you have to realize is there's a frequency spectrum that you're dealing with, and there's only so much you can fit into it. And if you want focus, you have to lead the listener with that focus. And so you can't just slap everything up there and then start moving faders around to create it. You have to know where you're going before you start. And and that and that's something that I have always done, even in post. And I've told so many people, uh, friends of mine who are directors, you know, you can't have a cacophony. You can have a cacophony, but you need to have focus, point focus, point effects. Lead the watcher, lead lead the listener with those sounds. Tell the story that way. If you have it all going at once, it's just going to be a big jumble and the listener won't be able to listen to anything at a time, you know? And so it's, it's really important to have a focus and to know where you're going, be it post or be it music, so that you're not confounding the listener. You have to make it a pleasant experience. I love that. Uh, that that's great advice, and I, I think we should probably end it on that because I, I think that that's such a a true statement. You definitely need to have that that focus so and uh, know where you're going because then it makes the rest of the process easy. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it all sure, falls it's, into place. Yeah, it's been great chatting with you. If people want to learn more about you online or some of the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Just uh, I'm I'm still on Facebook because it allows me to stay in touch with my international friends easier. And LinkedIn, um, I'm on there. I don't really do a lot with that, but people do reach out to me that way. And I answer them back. Awesome. It's, it's been a blast having you. I really appreciate it. And I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much for having me. So that was my interview with Sherry Klein. And that was a lot of fun. It actually really brought me back to many years ago when I was working in Audio Post and just so many of the different facets of how that industry is both different and similar to working in music. And I think that for me, it just really drives home the fact that you need to be very clear on your processes when it comes to this stuff. And obviously when you're working on film and you've got hundreds of tracks to work with, I mean, process is super important because you have no choice but to work extremely fast. But it makes me think about how, you know, there are people that work on music that maybe have 30 tracks, 50 tracks in their sessions. And it's a three-minute song. And yet, it still takes them weeks or sometimes even longer to get a mix done. Whereas, you get someone like Sherry who's putting together these two-hour-long films with hundreds of tracks and literally getting it done within a day or two. So, having a process is so important. And when you define that process, even if you're working in music, it allows you to work so much smarter, so much faster, and have so much more creativity and focus through the whole process. So it's super important to have that process. And I definitely want you to reflect back on what you do with your process and how you go about approaching 
either your music or if you're working in film and post-production stuff, how you go about approaching your mixes from that perspective. Once you have that process down, double down on it. Work on optimizing it. And if you need help with that, I've got a great book that's designed to help you with that. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, I break down that process of mixing music step-by-step, showing you what steps to take, what to be listening for, what tools to use, how to dial in settings, all that kind of stuff. So I definitely want to refer you to that book. And it's called The Mixing Mindset. And that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So if you're interested in learning more about that, make sure to check that out. And at MasterYourMix.com, not only do I have the book there, but there's also a ton of other great resources designed to help you throughout the whole process of working on your music. So definitely go check that out, MasterYourMix.com. So with that said, we've reached the end of the episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.